Amen. If you have your Bible with you, uh, go ahead and grab it and turn with me to Psalm 133. Uh, That's where we're going to be picking it up today as we continue in worship. Uh, We're in Psalm 133. It's part of a group of psalms there. that The the group begins there in 120, Psalm 120, and it goes through Psalm 134. These are what they call the songs of ascents. And so these were the pilgrim songs that would have been They would have been sung by the people of God as they were making their way. Uh, It was always up to Jerusalem for any of the feasts or festivals. And and so historically, that's the context. Psalm 133 is basically part of their their road trip playlist uh, back in the day. And so what I'd ask you to do now is, is to just stand with me, if you will, if you're willing and able, stand with me and let's set our hearts to join Here's what we're doing. We're joining in an ancient song here together this morning. This is Psalm 133. Behold, how good and pleasant it is when brothers dwell in unity. It is like the precious oil on the head running down on the beard, on the beard of Aaron, running down on the collar of his robes. It is like the dew of Hermon, which falls on the mountains of Zion, for there the Lord has commanded the blessing, life forevermore. It's the word of the Lord. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, you, you know us. You know how we've come in here this morning. You know the things clamoring for our attention right now. You know the distractions that, that got hold of us this morning, the little roadblocks and hurdles. Maybe we came in here this morning overwhelmed. Maybe we stayed up too late and came in here tired. Maybe we're frustrated. Maybe we don't feel great. Maybe we're in a season where where we feel like we're doing more hiding than we are living. Lord, you know that. You know us. And so wherever it is that we came from here this morning, would you meet us in that with your word? Would you speak to us so that we might hear you over all the noise, over all the distractions, over all the grief, over all the anxiety? Would you give us ears to hear the voice of our God and King this morning? Lord, we need that. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. All right, so this is a lame, this is a lame introduction, but it's the best I've got. Um, I love the word behold. I, 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 I love the word behold. Over the last few years, as, and I would say this, as you all have been very, very patient with me, Uh, in this role as a preacher of the gospel. And as we have had the privilege together of walking through various books of the Bible, uh, behold is a word that we have heard over and over again. It's a word that shows up just in the Old Testament from Genesis to Malachi. The word behold shows up over a thousand times. And so what it does, behold, becomes this sort of theme for us in the Bible. Anything that's said that many times becomes thematic, and it leaves us with this constant pattern of God telling His people to look. That's what He does. All, all throughout the Bible, it's this constant stop and look. He's telling His people to see. And behold is a, I would say this, behold is a weighted word. 
right? It's a word that carries depth. It's a word that has meaning and passion. I, I tried it at lunch uh, with some of my favorite people uh, just this past week. I was like, I'm just going to work behold into this conversation. And uh, it, 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 it didn't go well. All right, I just want to level that. I love the word, but nobody uses it. Nobody says, behold. We don't use it. So I, I tried it, and so the person was coming out uh, with the tray of food. We had ordered, like, I mean, it was just the most random meals we had ordered at this place. And it comes walking to the table, the tray of food, and I go, behold. And they looked at me like I was an absolute moron. Um, I felt stupid. And so I did what any pastor would do in that situation. I was like, let's pray. And so we just said the blessing and tried to move past the awkwardness of that moment. I tried it three other times uh, through the course of lunch, and never once was it embraced, not at all. I just, I, I ended that meal feeling pretty low. Anyway, here's the thing. You can't say behold about any old thing, right? It, it just doesn't work. It didn't work with lunch. It probably won't work with, you know, I, I, anyway, it just doesn't work. If you're riding down the road and you see something and you say to your wife or your husband, behold, they're not going to look. They're going to they're gonna, they're gonna look, but they're going to look at you. They're not going to look at the thing that you want them to see because behold just doesn't work in that context. No, a behold, a behold has to be earned. A behold has to be deserved. A behold implies that depth and meaning. A behold suggests that whatever it is, is worthy that whatever it is, is special. A behold signifies that whatever it is, is out of the ordinary. A behold is big. A behold is momentous. It's like a parent saying, look the first time. Look the first time their child takes a step. It's something you cannot miss this. Pick your eyes up and see, right? This is worth looking at. This is worth stopping whatever else it is that you are doing. Behold, look, see. That's how this psalm starts. That's how Psalm 133 starts. It's this call for us, for you and me today to see, here it is, for us to see how the unity of God's people how the coming together of, of this people, let's, we don't have to look outside of here for right now. When we say the church, we're talking about far more than who is in this room right now. We are talking about all of God's people across all of space and time all together. That's the church. But we don't have to look beyond right here for us to see the supernatural bond that God brings between people of of, 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 of divergent cultures, of, of different races, of different of disparate classes of people, right? How it speaks to the glory of. This is what y'all do for one another. Sitting here right now, it speaks to the glory, to the glory of our redemptive king. It's this song that tells how the ordinary unity of God's people is a witness to the extraordinary grace of God in their lives. That's what you're doing even right now. And it's a reminder that it's through the seemingly mundane and ordinary things in life that the Lord often shows us that this is how it's meant to be. And so this is a word for us today. As we travel on this pilgrim journey in the life of faith that the Lord has called us into, this psalm gives us three truths about the unity of God's people. 
is, and, 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 and this is critical. It's not just because we like having three-point sermons. I'm telling you, every verse of this psalm is a point in and of itself. It's that the unity of God's people on this pilgrim pathway, here it is, it's objectively good, it's objectively visible, and it is objectively eternal. Those are the three things that this psalm does not play around with. It doesn't hint at. It comes at us uh, verbatim and says those are true. Psalm 133 speaks of our shared life and our shared mission together, and it's, this, it's that it's objectively good, it is objectively visible, and it is objectively eternal. And it starts there at verse 1. David writes this. He says, Behold how good and pleasant it is when brothers dwell and unity. And so that behold is not just meant to, it's not a little thing. It's meant to call us to attention. It's meant to call us to attention. It says that there's something different here. There is something worth looking at because if we know anything about the world that we inhabit, if we know anything about the place that we dwell, it's that unity, unity, unity isn't really normal. It's not normative. It's not ordinary. It's actually hard to find. It's that unity, it's that while unity may be a common theme, it's not a common reality in the world around us. Most of us have grown up, here's the truth, most of us have grown up in this sort of hyper-individualistic uh, society. And, and, that, and that doesn't make us altogether unique from, from previous generations. It, it might be more aggressively expressed today through various forms of media and communication, but that's the culture. It's this hyper-individualistic reality that we find ourselves in. But it isn't really new. And in fact, what I would argue is that the times of greatest societal fracture, they often occur during the seasons of greatest prosperity within that culture. It's times of abundance that seem to get us into trouble. It's the counterintuitive reality that it's affluence that often puts us in an unhealthy, puts an unhealthy strain on human relationships. That's what it does. It's when we're at our height that things seem to fall apart. That's what we see in Genesis 13. I'll give you an example. We see it in Genesis 13. That's where, if you don't know that, in Genesis 12, that's where God calls Abram. He's going to become Abraham. In Genesis 12, God calls Abram out of a people. He says, I'm going to make of you a nation, as many as the stars in the sky, as many as the grains of sand uh, by the sea. And in Genesis 13, what's happening there is Abram and, his, and, and Lot, this is a family member of his named Lot, that's an unfortunate name, his just name is Lot, okay? And they're experiencing this rapid increase. Here's, it's, it's just it's hard to even explain, but they're just experiencing this rapid increase in their material possessions. The story there is that they are both flourishing in such a way, and what it says in Genesis 13, it says that they, as they increased, they had, they had flocks and herds and tents. Those are the three things. And that doesn't sound like great for us, you know, but, but flocks and herds, that was, that was your sustenance. That was how you paid for stuff. And so if you have many flocks and herds, you were wealthy. And they have many tents, meaning they have a lot of people. So their family is expanding too, as they have all of this stuff. And then what it says is that, so it, that they had so much of this, flocks and herds and tents, so that the land could no longer support both of them dwelling together, for their possessions were so great that they could not dwell together. And the tendency that we have, many of us, is to read that as a blessing. That they had so much stuff 
that they, there wasn't even enough room for them to be near each other, that, that Abram had so much stuff over here and Lot had so much stuff over here that it kept getting in the way, and, and, they, and so they had to scatter apart. This must mean that they are being blessed. They're both flourishing in such a way that they can't dwell together. That must mean that things are going well. It means growth. It means profit. It means all the stuff we want to talk about as blessing. It means wealth and riches and affluence. But the Bible points it out as a problem. And I think this has been missed in a lot of our readings of Genesis 13 because the problem is that the affluence led to a fractured relationship. The riches led to a broken relationship. And now, unlike the design that God had for for His people, for uh, for His own possession, the people of God look just like the nations of the world around them. This same thing can happen. This same thing can happen if we aren't careful. It can happen in the church. Uh, Just last week, we had the privilege of welcoming new members into the body here. It was a sweet time, and we thank the Lord for that. We thank the Lord for His working in and around and through His people and for sustaining His church. And when we welcome 12, or how many was it, 24 total new members, uh, we, we reference 1 Corinthians 12. Because in 1 Corinthians 12, what what Paul's doing there is he's describing the church. He's kind of giving us, this is what it looks like to to be the church. And here's what it says there. It says, For just as the body is one and has many members, and all the members of the body, though many, are one body, so it is with Christ. For in one spirit we were all baptized into one body. Jews are Greek, slaves are free, and all were made to drink of one spirit. For the body does not consist of one member but of many. Paul's going, this is God's design for his people, right? He's, 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 going, he's going, this is how it's meant to be. One body made up of many members, right? We got hands, we got feet, we got toenails. So I tell you all the time, sometimes I feel like a pinky toenail in the body of Christ, right? That's how I feel about myself a lot of times. Everyone is there. God's going, this is what it's supposed to look like. Everyone is useful, Everyone is meaningful. We can say it like this. In God's design for His people, in His place, under His rule, everyone is necessary. Every single one. And so if there's disunity, if there's animosity in the body, that's God's illustration for us. He uses the body illustration for us, right? That's like a virus. It's like cancer. We'd say, if you go to the doctor and you are discovered to have cancer, he would say that, we would say that we are sick. I heard one author say this, that if a church is marked by disunity, animosity, or infighting, it is just as ill or cancerous. And so God's vision for his people, his vision for us as an alternative society, is a, is a vision of unity. I love how Eugene Peterson paraphrases verse 1. He says, how wonderful, how beautiful when brothers and sisters get along. I mean, isn't that just so? so, Anybody with roommates is like, amen, right? uh, All the college students are like, yeah, you didn't tell me about this before I got here. Yeah, this is just how good, how how wonderful, how beautiful when brothers and sisters get along. And like all the parents should have amened, right? I mean, I don't know what's wrong with y'all. What does it take? How good and pleasant it is when brothers dwell in unity. See, that's the song. That is a song we want to hear. There's a harmony to it. That's the idea of pleasant. It's harmonious. And when you hear it, right, when you hear a pleasant song, it's refreshing. 
That's why our, that's why our musicians come and, and rehearse our songs of praise. It's to bring harmony so that we can join in that song. It's to bring a song that we want to join in and sing. That, that same word for pleasant, it, it's sometimes translated in the Old Testament as sweet. It's the same word that's, that's, that's translated other times as delightful. It brings joy to see brothers dwelling in unity. It brings joy to us when we hear of a community group living life together, walking through hard times together. It brings joy to us to hear of a student reaching out to another student and say, can I give you a ride to, to worship this week? It brings joy to see people pursuing one another in the good times and in the bad things. This is a beautiful picture that God has given us. It brings comfort because here's what it does. God does this. He gives us this gift. It reminds us of how things are meant to be. You see, the goodness of God's design, fractured by the fall, broken by sin, right? Even in that, we get a taste of it when we see a glimpse of true unity in God's people. That's what David's getting at. It's that unity gives us a hint of Genesis 1 and 2. It's like a rumor. Unity becomes this rumor to us of the pre-fall reality where God said the same word, where God pronounced the same benediction over all creation, seeing everything that he made, and behold, God says, look, it was very good. This is what we're meant to be. Instead of pointing fingers to accuse, we're stretching out our arms to help. Instead of raising our voices to slander, we're lifting our voices to encourage. Instead of hoarding our resources to make our lives more comfortable, we're freely and joyfully giving that others might be blessed. God's going, that's worth seeing. That's worthy of your time. That's worthy of your energy. That's worthy of your effort. That's worthy of your resources because that's beautiful. Because that's delightful. Because that's his vision for his people. And it's objectively good. I know it was mentioned earlier, and we have come, so we've gotten so used to doing these things, it's easy to just kind of throw it into robot mode and, and keep on cruising. But we just had a baby born into the church just early this morning. We are meeting on its birthday. Her birthday, not it. It's a her. Binax, if you're watching, I knew that already. Um, there's going to be a thing that's going to go out, a little meal train thing, right? And it's going to get filled up. I always love it. And I'm, I'm gonna, so I want to applaud this church on this. I'll look at it the day after it comes out, and it'll already be filled. I have no doubt. Laurie and I haven't gotten to take a meal to a new family in two years because y'all take all the slots. We do it anyway. We just barge in there. It's fun. Look at verse 2 with me. Verse 2 is the first of two not competing but collaborating illustrations that he gives us. And I will tell you that yes... Both are cultural references that for us are pretty easy to miss. David writes of this unity. Here's what he says. Here's verse 2. It is like precious oil on the head running down the beard, on the beard of Aaron running down the collar of his robes. Amen? Yeah, nailed it. One of the beautiful things about the Bible is how consistent it is. Uh, you may have seen, you may have seen, anybody seen this picture that's going around? It's, I mean, it's not new. It's been out for a couple of years now. Going around, it's called the cross-reference rainbow. Has anybody seen this thing? 
It's amazing, right? It's the cross-reference rainbow. It's out there. You can Google it. Not now. Please, not now. But it's this graphic that was put together to visually represent each of the 63,779 cross-references found in the Bible. 63,779 cross-references. That means the Bible talking about the Bible in the Bible. That's what a cross-reference is. 63,779. And it's a powerful image. And what's really cool about it is that one of the arcs on that rainbow is a direct line from Psalm 133 to Exodus 30. It's a direct little line that goes from Psalm 133 to Exodus 30 because in Exodus 30, we find Aaron, the one who's mentioned right here, the Aaron that David is talking about. We find that Aaron and he's being anointed with oil. And it's an important scene uh, in biblical history, and God is very specific about it. It's not just any old oil. That's not what he's doing there. I'm going to read this to you and just see if you can follow this. In Exodus 30, it says that the Lord said to Moses, listen to this, take the finest spices of liquid myrrh, 500 shekels. A shekel is a measurement. It's a unit of measurement like gallon or ounce. And he says, take 500 shekels of liquid myrrh and of sweet smelling cinnamon, half as much. And then in case they didn't understand that, he goes, that is 250. And 250 of aromatic cane and 500 of cassia, according to the shekel of the sanctuary, and a hen of olive oil. So it's not just oil, right? It's not just oil. And Moses, what he was supposed to do was take all that stuff as the priest of God's people. He was to take all that stuff, mix it all up. And all of that is this sweet, very strong smelling mixture. And here's what God says next. He says, you shall anoint Aaron and his sons and consecrate them that they may serve me as Now, I've only ever been part of two anointings with oil. Both were uh, were men experiencing sort of chronic illnesses. And so in keeping with James 5, they came to the church. They asked us to lay hands on him and, and pray for them, called on the elders of church is what it says. Let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And I'll never forget that first time we did that. Just being honest, I thought it was so weird. Um, I'd never seen it done. I'd never participated in it. It was like a little tube of olive oil that somebody had like taped a napkin around. I don't know why, so it would look more official. I don't know. And, and they like took a dab, like a, just a dab of it, and we're like, and that was it. And then we prayed. And I learned a critical lesson that day, that if you are going to anoint someone with oil and pray for them, make sure you get into a comfortable position because there's a good chance you're going to be in that spot for like a long time. Both legs fell asleep. It was awkward at the end of it. Just a whole deal. So if you're ever invited to anoint someone with oil and pray by laying hands on them, strategy is necessary. And I know that's not a word. Some of y'all know where that came from. It is mission critical that you get in a comfortable position before you start. Anyway, I also remember how the pastor anointed him with oil and you couldn't really tell. Like you, you knew it had happened, but you couldn't see it. It was like a dab of the finger and so it was invisible. If you didn't know it, you would have no idea. 
You wouldn't notice it. You couldn't. Here's what it is. You couldn't behold it. That's sort of the image, if I can be a little critical right now, that's sort of the image we get at the church today. It's that if there's something different about those people, if there's something different about those people who call themselves Christians, it's not really enough to make a difference. Like the guy who walked into the building looks just like like the guy who walked in. There's been no change. And that's a failure in our time. It's, It's that we... And we got to look inwardly. It's that we look so similar to the world around us. We look so, so similar to the world around us in our politics, in our, in our temperaments, in our engagement with the people around us. We look so similar that we're unnoticeable. Like we look, and, and to use Aaron's oil there, we look and we smell just like the world around us. And so the question has to The question has to become, if the church looks like the world, why bother with the church? But the idea in Psalm 133 is that the unity of God's people, this unity, is objectively visible. You can see it. You can smell it. It sort of radiates off of them. It's not just on the head. It's running down the beard of them. It's on the collar of their robes. I think about this every Friday night when we walk out on the field. Uh, if you, if most of y'all know that I spend every afternoon coaching football, and on Friday nights we get dressed up, right? We pass out their uniforms. They got their numbers on them. And they all match, right? They're all the same. I think about this. I literally, I think about this every single Friday night when I see our guys getting dressed for the game. I think about the church. All the players have a uniform that essentially says, this is who I belong to. They wear it on them. Now, I'm not asking you to buy t-shirts. This is not a push. We're not, this is not a fundraiser for the building. Hey, I heard they're selling t-shirts. That's not what happened. But there's a sense that our unity, like our love for one another, remember Jesus said, this is how they'll know you're my disciples. He didn't say it's because of the shirt you wear, not because of the school you go to. He said it's by your, what? By your love for one another. That's how Jesus said the world would identify you. That's God's design for his people. That's how we're meant to live. And the oil tells us something about how we're meant to live. The oil, remember the oil from Exodus 30, it tells us. I mean, you see, oil, what oil represents is healing. It was oil in the, in the Old Testament. That's the most common form of medicine uh, in that time. It represents healing by God. And so if we, bearing God's image as his people, we ought to bring healing with us, not division. We ought to bring joy not sorrow. It represents anointing. The oil was to confer the gift and the calling on the person by God. It represents their set-apartness. And so we should live in the world, but not of the world. It's, it's in the words of Ted Lasso, right? We should be curious. We shouldn't just fall in line with everything around us. We should weigh it against what God's Word says. Just because everybody around you is doing something, I think I learned this when I was about four years old, right? Just because everybody's doing doesn't mean it's right. At some point, we seem to have put that lesson on the shelf of our culture. Be curious about the things around us. By the way, Tad Lesso says that Walt Whitman said that, and there's zero proof that Walt Whitman said that. So anyway, 
The third thing oil represents is consecrating. Consecrating means our being declared sacred by God. That God doesn't see you as profane anymore. He sees you as holy. We sang the song forgiven earlier. I am forgiven is not just a statement of reality. It's an identity statement. This is who we are in Christ. I love the image we're given of this in Ephesians 2. And In Ephesians 2.19, Paul writes to the church and he reminds them of all of this. Everything that we're talking about, he reminds them. And he says, so then you are no longer strangers and aliens, meaning at one time you were. To be no longer something means that you were at some point that thing. And so he says, so you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone. And I love how that passage gives us this image of God as the architect of our salvation. It was in Christ that the Lord set His people apart as a, as, a, as a chosen race, as a royal priesthood, as a holy nation, as a people for His own possession. It was at the cross right, that Jesus took our sin upon Himself. This is not brand new information for anybody who's ever been here, but we need to, take, we need to behold this from time to time, that it was at the cross that Jesus died in our place that he took all my sin, that he took all my guilt, that he took all my shame, and he carried that burden, not because he deserved it, but because he was faithful in his love for the Father and in his love for us. That is the gospel. And what Paul says about him is that he is the cornerstone. Well, you only put a cornerstone in place if you're building a structure. There's no such thing as a cornerstone unless it leads to other Corners, And what Psalm 133 is telling us is that objectively, obviously, and intentionally, God has built that structure to be visible. His alternative society, the citizen saints of God in the world, is meant to be a visible witness to the grace and the mercy of our God. That's the idea. You and I are the picture that God has painted for the world to see of His love, mercy, grace, and forgiveness. That's the blueprint of God for us as his people. And here's the other thing. It's never ending. Look at verse 3 with me. Here's what it takes. Or here's where it takes us. Look at 3. Again, this unity. It is like the dew of Hermon, which falls on the mountains of Zion. For there the Lord has commanded the blessing, life forevermore. When, When Jesus came and dwelt among us, he said a lot of things, right? We can agree on that. He said a lot of things. Most of us know that. We, we understand that. We have a record of that in Scripture. And one of the most profound things that Jesus said is in, is in John 11, verses 25 and 26. That's where he said, I know you don't all have it memorized. That's okay. In John 11, he said, I am, one of the famous I am sayings, he says, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, listen to this, whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. That's what Jesus said. Now, he was saying that to a friend of his. We are eavesdroppers on that conversation. saying that to a friend of his, to a woman named Martha. And Martha's brother had just passed away. Martha's brother had just been buried, and they were mourning him. And it's to her that Jesus comes and says, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, you shall live. And then he asked her, he asked her this question. He says, do you believe this? 
in that tough moment, Martha is at the bottom at this moment. Her brother is dead. Mourning in that season was something that we can't hardly comprehend now. We have a, a welcome or a greeting or a visitation, and then we have a, a service, and then we go put somebody in the ground. And then the truth is, in our world, we move on as quickly as we can. That's not how it was in first century Palestine. There were seasons of mourning. Martha is entertaining guests. She is at her lowest. She is, she is mourning at rock bottom. And Jesus says, I'm the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet he shall live. And then he questions her and says, do you believe this? And, and she said, she gives a great answer, perfect answer. She just goes, yes, Lord. So I want to ask you, <laughs> Do you believe this? Do you believe that the life that Jesus offers to you by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, do you believe that it is eternal? Do you believe that it is unbound by time? Do you believe that it is never ending? One of the beautiful implications of this illustration of the dew of Hermon falling on the mountains of Zion is that it's pretty much physically impossible. Those two areas are not really that close to one another. They're actually far apart. The snow-covered Hermon is in the rural north of the land, and Zion is centralized there in the more urban city of Jerusalem. And so in a lot of ways, Hermon and Zion represent these polar opposites. They could not be farther apart. And yet in Christ... They are supernaturally brought together. In Christ, they form this truly symbiotic relationship. There's a mutual dependence on the two of them. It's not that, it's not that all the differences vanish, but that they combine, that the differences combine to form a more beautiful picture. That's the idea here, is that the unity of God's people, it's so unique that it doesn't make sense apart from some supernatural work of the Spirit, it doesn't make sense. But as we live into the life that we're called into, into that objectively eternal reality that, it, that, by the way, doesn't begin down the road, but has already begun for us in Christ, the trappings of this life, they begin to lose their grip on us. The temporal falls away at the sight of the eternal. What looks so different is brought together. And this is what I love about the church. I know most of the time y'all don't get to see this. One of the greatest blessings that I get is every week I get to stand up here and see the mosaic that God paints of all these different stories, all these different backgrounds, all these different struggles, all these different victories, all these different moments of, of success and all the moments of failure, all the fears and all the doubts, all the surety and all the hope. I get to see all of that in you. It's, I am the most spoiled man that you know, because I get to see a visual representation of what God's talking about here in Psalm 133. Our worry and anxiety are leveled against the promise of eternal peace and rest. As you and I get to look forward together to something greater. That's what the songs of a sense do for us today. They remind us, at their core, they remind us that there is something greater. They point us to something higher. And so just like the pilgrims, play with me for one more minute. 
Just like the pilgrims would ascend that hill to Jerusalem for their festivals, our pilgrim lives are ascending the hill of faith and hope and love together, recognizing what our God has said, that if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. Not he will be a new creation, right? He is a new creation. Not he might be. Not he could be. He is now a new creation. Do you remember what it says next? If anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old is passed away, remember? What's the next word? Behold. Behold, the new has come. See it, man. Behold it. Open your eyes. See one another. Dwell with one another. Behold how good and pleasant it is when brothers dwell in unity. That's the song, man. That is the harmony that God has written for us. May we, right, walking in the living hope of Christ, man, my prayer is that this church would be the song of redemption that God uses to call new sons and daughters, new creation sons and daughters to himself. I don't know that we'll ever get behold to be a part of our normal rhetoric. I've tried unsuccessfully. But we can live it out. And when we live it out, we don't have to say it. They just see it. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, thank you for your grace and your mercy to us. May we behold that grace and mercy daily. May we hear it. May we feel it. May we sing it. May we live it. May we walk in it, in our classes, in our workplaces, in our dorms, in our apartments, houses, wherever it is that you place us, as we serve students with young life, as we, as we raise our kids, as we... As we walk by the way, whatever it is, Lord, let us follow the pilgrim pathway that you have given to us. Let us walk in the love of Christ together. May our, may our lives be a fragrant offering for you. We pray that in Jesus' name. Amen.